Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for braving the wind and the snow and the rain. I don't know if you've seen it's snowing. I looked out the window just before I came out. Um, and it's a little weird for me to come from backstage, but as most of you know, uh, if you were here last week, um, just before we jump into this new series, I just want to say this. If you were here last week, you know that a few days before Sunday, I started feeling some symptoms and got a COVID test and tested positive for COVID last Friday. Um, and so if if you were here at the service last week, we were supposed to start the series then, and I called the team and, you know, just kind of backing kind of backing up what Amber just said about the incredible volunteers who make this place happen. I am so grateful for you guys, for the church, for the volunteers, but then also for the staff that I get to work with, because I called them on Friday night and said, hey guys, I can't be at church on Sunday, and I know we were going to start a brand new series, and I know I was supposed to do that, and so the team just came together in an incredible way, and I'm so grateful for the strength and who they are, the character, and um, if you were here last week, I thought it was an amazing service, almost like it was planned, even though we didn't plan it, it felt like a wonderful, wonderful service. So if you missed out, I'm sorry you missed out. It was wonderful. Um, and then also just to say that um, according to the CDC, I've done as much research as I can and a lot of conversations and all that, but according to the CDC, I'm allowed to be here. Um, just wanted to say that out loud because we wanted to kind of figure out, make sure, because we always want to make sure we're as safe as possible, you know, kind of not give people COVID. We don't want to do that. Um, and so I don't want to do that. And so made sure, and according to all the guidelines, it's cool for me to be here, but uh, out of an abundance of precaution, I'm not going to do what I normally do and come off stage afterwards and just chat with people. I'm going to disappear backstage. So please forgive me for that. It feels weird walking backstage afterwards, but that's kind of the plan, so I just wanted to let you know. Um, but thank you for being here. Thank you that we can dive into a brand new series. We were supposed to start it last week, but we're starting it this week. And the series we're starting is called The God Jesus Knows. The God Jesus knows. And that's where we're headed for the next few weeks. And you'll find out kind of as we get into the message why we're calling it that. But to get us on the same page, I wanna talk about something that the new year usually elicits in all of us. There's something in us as humans that I think anything new, especially the new year, elicits in us. Even if you're not the new year's resolution kind of person, there's something in us as humans that wants to grow that wants to be better, that wants to um, find the best version of ourselves, that wants to change. There's something in all of us that wants to do that. Um, I don't know if you know this, but statistics tell us that more people uh, make New Year's resolutions than watch the Super Bowl in America every year. That's a lot of people um, making New Year's resolutions. And why do we do that? Because there's something in us that, as humans that wants to grow, that wants to change. Uh, the Forbes magazine article a little while ago put it very concisely when it said this, self-improvement, or at least the desire for it, is a shared American hobby. Self-improvement, or at least the desire for self-improvement, you know, that's kind of in the back of my mind, I want to improve, um, is a, a shared American hobby. And it's why when we start a new year or start a new, you know, and I've, I've looked at the psychology behind it, why every beginning of the year? And it's kind of because that was the old, this is the new, this is the new me, new year, new life, new habits. And we kind of, there's a psychological thing about a line in the sand that we do and we try to change. And so every year we decide to exercise more, we decide to eat better, we decide to change some habits, we decide to do things, we decide to be more disciplined at things. And it's also why 
sometimes in the beginning of the year, some people in our community, you know, in the South especially, some people go, you know what, I think I'm gonna go back to church. And the reason we do that is because we feel like God or faith or religion can help us be the best version of ourselves, can help us self-improve. And so it seems like all of us, and, and again, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time talking about this, I believe this is true statistically and psychologically, all of us want to be better. We want to change, we want to grow, we want to improve ourselves, we want to be the best version of ourselves. All of us want that, um, and we all kind of almost every year decide that, and then we put some things in practice to do that. We all want to change, we all decide to change, we all do stuff to change, and that kind of brings up the question, as I've looked at my own life, and as I've looked at others, and I've looked at statistics, if we all want it, we all try to, we all decide to, why don't we change? You know, that question comes to mind for me and for others as I've spoken to them. Why do we so often not change? If it's what we try to do, if so many resolutions are made, I don't know if you've heard the statistics, but between 92 and 95% of New Year's resolutions don't work. That's a lot. <laughs> By the end of every year, 92 to 95% of those decisions to change have failed, and then we remake them the next year until you get like me and you stop making New Year's resolutions, and you're like, well, what's the point? It doesn't work, 92 to 95% of it, so why? Why, if we want it, if we try, if we decide, if we do things, why do we so often not change? Why can't we change those deep things? Why can't we change those real things that we try? to change. And I think, just kind of as we're going down the series, I wanna kind of offer this theory that I think the reason we don't change in the most important areas of our lives is because we're trying to change in all the wrong ways. I think one of the reasons we don't change is because we're trying to change kind of the veneer, outward things, and I don't think our change efforts, if, if you will, go deep enough. Because I think inside of all of us are foundational things that our life is built on. Sometimes we don't even know what those foundational things are, but there are foundational things that everything else comes from, and most of the time we're trying to change these things. Clip off the fruit, and yet there's a root that's growing. And we don't take time to look at what is the root, what, what is the foundation of what it is that we're trying to change out here, but we're not changing deep enough in our lives. To kind of build this case, I want to do my best to sort of explain what I think this is and explain what Christianity seems to teach. I wanna look at what Paul, a guy who I think was an expert at change, um, if you know his story, he, he wrote almost two-thirds of the New Testament, an incredible human being, probably one of the most five, five most influential people that this world has ever seen. It's crazy. And, and he, if you know his story, he was one way, and then he completely Change. So he understood change, and yet as he writes, I think he allows us to see into the journey that he was on because he talks about this deep, deep reality inside of himself that kept him from being unable to do the things that he wanted to do. In Romans chapter seven, he writes, this is part of a letter that he writes to the people in Rome, and he explains how his experience of this was there. He says this in Romans seven, verse 15, I do not understand what I do. That's a good start right there. <laughs> I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. 
And then jump to the second part of verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Looks like they were doing New Year's resolutions back then as well. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, I don't know specifically what he meant in his life about the evil when he wrote that, because, I mean, Paul, an incredible human being, an amazing, amazing person, he says there's evil that I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. So, so, so what I think he's doing is sort of explaining, and again, I don't know specifically what he means by the evil, but I think in general he's explaining here that there is a reality inside his own heart and I think we can see this um, in, in ourselves and in the world around us, that there's something in him that's imperfect. And he, Paul, this amazing, incredible human being, one of the best in the history of the world, says there's something imperfect in me. And he's talking about his own lack, which is what the Greek word for evil that he used points to, a lack, an inability to do what he should do. And he's talking, I think what he's acknowledging here is there is something Lacking in his own effort and his own ability to change something deep inside of him. He is powerless to change something deep inside of him. He continues and he describes what I believe is not just a thing for Paul, but a very human thing that impacts, I think, all of us. At least Christianity teaches that it impacts all of us. I found it at least to be true of me. He says in verse 21, So I find this law at work Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I mean, Paul was amazing at trying to live up to certain standards. He was trying to live up to God's standards, not just his own. I mean, he was really good at that. And he says, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, it's somewhere inside, there's this Lord working me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And right here, Paul begins to teach a really important Christian doctrine or Christian teaching that, that sometimes lands wrongly with us. Because if you're not a Christian and you start hearing, okay, like basically what he's saying is this, that all of us, from the best of us like Paul to the worst of us, all of us have what he calls a sin problem. We all have a sin problem. And if you're not a Christian and, and here's someone telling you, you have a sin problem, like that word sin has been used to judge people and kind of push people aside and condemn and all that stuff. So I don't know how the word sin lands with you. So if we just remove the word, my guess is, even if you're not a Christian, my guess is you understand the idea of that. Because what Paul's saying is there's something broken, there's something flawed, there's something imperfect in him that he wrestles with. And we all know that as humans. It's why we struggle to do the right thing always. Like, why is it hard to do the right thing? I've said this before, but, but like, I mean, if, if, if we knew we should just do the right thing and it's better for everybody, can't we just do the right thing? Why, don't, why do we struggle, especially when we're emotional, especially when someone else has done something wrong to us and that defensiveness rises? Why is it so hard to do the right thing? And why is it so easy to do the wrong thing sometimes? I mean, come on, it's irritating. It's easy to do the wrong thing sometimes. It's because there is something broken, there is something flawed in us as humans. It's why we say, I'm not perfect, I'm just human. We know that idea. And what Paul is saying is the reality that we, 
We all see it in, in the human nature of people around us, the news, you know, history. We see it in ourselves as well. There's something imperfect, and Paul calls that imperfection, that flawed nature, that, that human broken nature, he calls that sin at work in me. And he sees it as something deep inside our very nature. It's not just actions or bad things we do. It's an internal problem that he sees. And then he summarizes it in verse 24 when he says this. What a wretched man I am. And again, this is Paul. He was amazing. And he says, no, 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 no. There's something in me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then he goes on after describing this internal problem that he sees that keeps him from doing the things he wants to do. He goes on to describe in the most beautiful way this answer of who will rescue him from this body that's subject to this. Now, before I get to the answer, and we're gonna look at a beautiful description of that answer in a, in, in a few minutes. Before I get there, though, I wanna kind of spend a little bit of time and talk to you about how my own experience with this mess impacted my life how I discovered kind of this, this internal problem and how I kind of bumbled into an answer that actually helped me change because for the longest time, there were certain things in my life that I tried to change and I just couldn't. Even though I was doing well at other things, I just couldn't change these things. And I started to learn something that really changed the whole way I see that. So let me tell you a bit of my own experience. Um, I, like all of us, I wanna improve. I wanna be better, I wanna be the best version of myself. I wanna be, I wanna do well, I wanna succeed, I wanna do all that stuff well. And my go-to strategy as a person in order to do life well, in order to change, in order to grow, in order to improve, my go-to strategy for that is willpower. I'm gonna willpower myself into being awesome. <laughs> I'm gonna willpower myself into doing the right thing. And the way I do it is I try to find the best advice the best instruction, the best principle, and then I do my best to do it because I'm gonna willpower myself into doing it and if I can do it, I'll do it well. And you know what? For a lot of my years growing up, I was pretty good at that. I'd willpower myself. I was the good kid. I was an obedient child. I was the star student in some seasons, other seasons not, but I was a star student in some ways. I thought I had it all together. I, I, I went into ministry, Christian ministry, early in life, right out of high school. In fact, before I left high school, I was involved in youth ministry and doing all this stuff, so I really thought I was doing pretty awesome. I really thought I was doing a good job, willpowering myself into following Jesus' principles. It was going well. I was doing pretty awesome, but... I started to feel something growing inside of me and I didn't really understand it even though I was in ministry, even though I was like preaching to youth, students and all this stuff, even though I was doing that, I kind of started feeling what I think Paul was describing. I see another law at work in me. While I'm doing good, I'm trying, I'm trying to be great, I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And I wasn't sure what it was. I didn't know if I could call it that, but there was something growing in me. I kept moving forward and I kept trying to be like Jesus and trying to do all that stuff, but there was something in me and I was always drawn to a moralistic version of Christianity, meaning that I would find the instructions and the advice and the lessons that Jesus taught and I thought, just do them. 
Just do what Jesus said, because he's brilliant, right? He's Jesus, go do what he said, and if you just do what he said, then your life will be better. And you'll do life better, right? If you just do what Jesus says. And I was drawn to that kind of Christianity. Jesus said it, so I better try to do it, and if I do it, then my life will be awesome. That's what I thought. And again, I tried, and I worked hard, and I succeeded at some of it. But something that was growing in me was this realization that trying to follow the instructions of a perfect teacher made me feel more and more imperfect. He's a perfect teacher, just do it. And I'm like, okay, I'll try. And it made me feel more and more imperfect. Trying to follow the example of a perfect person started building a bit of a despair in me. And I was a good Christian kid. I was in ministry already. Let me, let me give you a few examples of how I started feeling this mess grow in me. Um, for years, early on in my marriage, um, I wanted to be a perfect husband. I really did. I wanted to be an amazing husband. I wanted to be a good husband. I wanted to have a great marriage. But somehow, year after year after year, um, the things that I did habitually kept hurting my wife and kept slowly but surely not pulling us together, but pushing us apart. And I was in ministry, and I was preaching, and I was reading the Bible, and I'm praying, and yet I was doing stuff that I didn't even recognize at first. I was doing stuff that I was pushing her away, and I didn't know why, and I, I wanted to change them. I wanted to be a great husband. I even prayed about it. I, I, I read the Bible. I did all the stuff, but something wasn't changing in me. And for years... I didn't change. And for years, I watched and felt the, the tension and the friction that it created. I'll, I'll come back to that in a few minutes. But another example in my life is this, that for years, I was driven by a deep sense of insecurity. And whenever I wasn't perfect, I felt it deep inside me. Whenever I didn't give a perfect talk, it was like, oh my gosh, whenever I didn't say the perfect thing in a meeting, have the best idea, whenever I was in charge of a, a sort of a project or something and it didn't come out and it was the best thing anyone had ever seen in their entire life, I mean, no one could ever have done it better. If I didn't feel that, then I felt this deep sense of insecurity. One silly example is one time a mentor came and heard me speak for the first time publicly. I was speaking to middle school students and I did my talk and I didn't feel great about it. I was a little nervous. And afterwards I asked him, how did it go? And he said, yeah, it was good. It was simple. It was clear. Well done. It was good. And I was crushed. <laughs> you know why? I actually went home and I lay on my couch for like three hours just crushed, feeling like I'm the worst person. Why? Because he never told me it was the best thing he'd ever heard in his life before. And he was going to stop speaking because it was just so good. <laughs> and I'm, I'm dead serious. Somehow that was in me. And I didn't want it. I wanted to get over it. I didn't want to feel that. Like, what is wrong with me? I wanted to change. I wanted to grow. And it just wasn't growing. And, and don't get me wrong, you know, just, just to be clear, no one on the outside knew about this because I was really good at looking good. No one knew about it. No, everyone would have thought I'm super secure and everybody would have thought I was a really great husband except me. And three months into my marriage, my wife, she knew about it as well and she felt that. And so I was wrestling and trying to change. And I'm in ministry. I mean, like part of it, I'm preaching. <laughs> like, and yet something in me is not changing. And I'm trying and I'm praying, why am I not changing? Why am I not doing that? 
And then I'm so grateful that I began to discover this thing that actually started to bring deep life change in me because I started to rediscover something that I thought I knew, but I started to rediscover something that began to change everything. I began to discover what Christianity really teaches about who God really is and what Christianity teaches really about who I really am. And I began to discover what Jesus actually made possible. And, and through new relationships and people bringing me in and helping me understand this, I began to learn and, and was actually able to apply this message of Jesus to my real practical daily life and marriage, and things began to change. And I'm so grateful that it started to, 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 to happen that way. Let me, let me try and explain how this worked and what I discovered um, all of us, no matter who you are, whether you're a Christian or not, religious or not, have a deep faith or not, all of us have certain ideas about who God is and certain ideas about who we are. And some of those ideas are accurate. They, they reflect exactly who God is, but some of those ideas are not. Some of those ideas are, are false or inaccurate or don't represent the God that Jesus actually taught and who he was. And what's crazy is that those inaccurate ideas can actually keep us from growing spiritually and changing those inaccurate ideas. And that's what I discovered in me. There were some inaccurate ideas about who I was and who God was that kept me from changing. I'm telling you, those ideas, those pictures we have of God, of our understanding of who he is and what he's like and who we are and how interaction between God and us actually happens, our understandings, even if they're wrong, those inaccurate understandings of us, of who God is and of who we are, are so impactful in our lives. What we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves will literally impact how we live, whether they're right or wrong. We will live our lives based on what we believe is true about God because our view and our understanding of who he is is what drives our behavior. Let me give you a, a, a silly example, maybe, or I think it's, it's, it's a true example, I think, but if you really, truly, to the deepest part of who you are, believed that God was real, that God was love, that he had your best in mind, that he loved you, he wanted your best, if you really believed that, wouldn't you do everything he says? Just, I mean, you wouldn't even question I know he loves me, I know he's, he's God, he's real. He loves me, he wants my best, okay, whatever you say. I don't even understand it, yes, yes, God, yes, because it's you, you love me, I just trust you. I don't understand, but I'll do it. If you really believe that that's who he is, he'll do whatever he says. But if you don't really believe that, if you, eh, I don't know if he really loves me, I don't know if he's really there, I don't know if he really knows, then it's not like you have to willpower yourself into doing it. If you really believe that, you're just naturally gonna do it. If you don't really believe that, that's gonna be a struggle to do anything he says. Our, our, our understanding of who he is is literally so foundational in how we live our lives. And that's why Jesus came. One of the main reasons he came was to not just give the best explanation of who God is, but to be the best explanation 
of who God is. He understood all of us. We all have misunderstandings and, and lack of information and all the stuff and views of who God is. And Jesus came and said, hey, I want you to know who he is. And he gave this best, incredible understanding of who he is because he knows how big a deal our idea, our picture, our understanding of who God is. So let me come back to how this reality impacted me a whole bunch. For the long season in my life, because of my understanding of God and because of myself, I, like I said, began to gravitate towards a moralistic understanding, a moralistic Christianity, an individual Christianity that I gotta do this, I gotta make it work myself, I've gotta go and do this kind of Christianity. You see, my picture of God was that he was super wise and brilliant, He's God, and he knows everything, and he knows how life works. So what that did, because that's kind of my primary picture of who God was, then, then if I just did what he said, my life would work. He's brilliant after all. He knows. He's wise. So just do what he says, and your life will work. Your marriage will work. If I could just follow his principles, his guidance, his advice, it would work because his advice is brilliant. That was my understanding of God. And that led to an understanding of me that said this, I can do what he said. I have actually have the ability in me that if I just try hard enough, I can do it perfectly. So if I saw him as super wise and me as, like, if I just do it, then I've got this picture that, okay, I just have to do what he says. And if I do that, my life will work. So that understanding of God, back to my marriage now, that understanding of God led me to literally, I remember this day, don't laugh, you can if you want, but I remember the day sitting down with my wife and looking at her and I literally said these words, we can do marriage perfectly. You can laugh. <laughs> I clearly had never been married. We can do marriage perfectly. I told her that. I said, if we just do everything he said, just do everything perfectly like God says we must, we will be the perfect couple and I will be a perfect husband and we will have a perfect marriage. And I, I literally, I believed that. And you know what that led to? And this is the sad part. What that led to, I believed, just do what he says because he's brilliant and I can do what he says and if we can do what he says, we'll have a perfect marriage. What that led to is me judging my wife for the next six or seven years on that standard. Why aren't you doing it perfectly? Why aren't you doing it like God says you must? And you know what it also led to? I don't know how this works. This is my own sin problem but it led to me not even seeing my own flaws because I was doing some of the things perfectly but I didn't even realize that in doing that, it was like this giant spotlight on her flaws shining away from me, thinking I'm perfect. And for years, I blamed my wife for every single problem in our marriage because we can do it perfectly because if you just do what God says, you can do it perfectly. You can imagine what that did to our marriage. And this is while I'm in ministry. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. This is while I'm preaching, while I'm praying, while I'm reading the Bible, all, and here's the problem. I was doing all the spiritual things, but all those spiritual things were on a foundation that was lacking. I saw God in a certain way that lacked a full picture of the God Jesus knows. And because of that, I saw myself in a certain way, I saw my wife in a certain way, and I saw God in a certain way, all because that foundation was there, and then I prayed on that foundation, just entrenched the foundation. Prayed and read the Bible on that foundation, found verses that helped my idea of who it is and who God is and who I am, 
And it all built that foundation. All on that flawed picture. And then I'm so grateful through some incredible people, through the grace of my wife, the long suffering of my wife, and through God pursuing my own heart, I began to realize like it was like a light shone on my heart and sort of showed the cracks in the mess of my own heart and my own misunderstanding of who he is and who I am. It started, uh, I don't exactly know when it started, but for me it started when we accidentally went on a marriage retreat. Um, I say accidentally because some people pulled out and so there were two extra seats available and so they said, you guys wanna come? We're like, cool, free weekend, let's go do it. But I don't even remember what was said that weekend, but somehow on that weekend it was like God shone a spotlight onto my heart, took it off her and put it on me and I realized, oh my gosh, I see God kind of not accurately, I see my Myself, not accurately. I, I'm not seeing any of my own flaws. I didn't realize that I was just judging and criticizing. There was no love and grace and kindness. And, and it shone in my own heart. And I'm blaming my wife for everything. And I looked over at her and I said, is that what I'm doing? And tears were running down her cheeks. And I realized, oh my gosh. And it was that day that this foundation, this faulty foundation of my picture of God and my picture of me started to shake. And God started to shine his light and love into my own heart, his own grace into my own heart because I was such a dork. I mean, it was terrible. It was not going well. And he shone and he helped me see me and see him differently. It was like this light shone in my heart, kind of what John describes in a letter that he wrote in 1 John chapter 1, which we're going to go to. Um, he describes so beautifully what I think happened to me. Uh, I can't resist to read the introduction, though, because he, he explains who Jesus is so beautifully in the introduction. So we'll start in 1 verse 1, 1 John 1 verse 1, where he talks about sort of, this is, this is who Jesus is. So I'm gonna quickly read that, and then we'll get to the point of what I wanna see here. In 1 verse 1, he says, 1 John 1 verse 1, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, Jesus showed up so that we could know the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. I feel like he's excited as he's writing this. The one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. This is John and his, his friends. We saw him. He is the word of life. If you want life, he is it. This is the one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him and now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who has eternal life, not just life, but eternal life. He is with the Father and then he was revealed to us. That's how we know who God is because Jesus let us know the God he knows. Verse three, we proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. You can connect with that and our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing this to you now so that you may fully share our joy. I'm so grateful these guys wrote this stuff down. They met Jesus and then wrote it down. I feel like I'm the primary audience for John. It's just so fun. And then he gets to this point. This is, this is what happened in me, I think. Verse five, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. He's light, he's perfect, he's pure. He's holy, that's who he is and he's light and he shines that light and if you let that light in, it can change everything. So 
Verse six, he says, we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. And that kind of resonated with me because I feel like even though I was a Christian, even though, and I don't think I wasn't a Christian, even though I was there, I feel like there was some spiritual darkness that I wasn't seeing some of the things he wanted me to see about myself and about him. He says, if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness, we are, practice, we are not practicing the truth, but... If we are living in the light, if we allow his light to shine, if we allow ourselves to be exposed, the real us, and if we can see who he really is and who we really are, if, if, if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. Real relationships are possible and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And I love that because he talks about that problem Paul mentioned, that deep problem in all of humanity. This is how it is accessed. If we walk in that light, we can have real relationships, be really known, and Jesus can cleanse us on the deepest level and fix those problems on the inside. He can begin to work on that deeply. Verse eight, if we claim we have no sin, I kind of was doing that. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, see ourselves in the real way that we really are, if we confess our sins to him, listen, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness, to go down to the deepest parts of who we are and begin to change things at that foundational level. That when that begins to change, then my life can begin to change. And I'm telling you, as this happened in me, I began to change. And my marriage began to change. The things that I couldn't change for years, those insecurities, that brokenness, that criticism, that judgment, that I couldn't change for years began to change because the deepest parts of me were changed. But I realized that it wasn't just a quick little prayer, God changed me, I had done that a million times. It wasn't just reading a quick scripture. I'd read this and I was in full-time ministry. It had to go deeper. What I needed, and this is what began then, what I needed was a deep and complete change of the picture that I had of me and the picture that I had of God. And this is the journey that I started on and that I'm still on, discovering more about who I am and who he is, allowing that picture to become more and more aligned with the God Jesus knows. Because I had a picture of him and it led certain directions into a weird kind of Justin-tainted Christianity Justin tainted marriage. But the closer I get to be aligned with the God Jesus knows, my understanding of him, man, it is so different. And my wife likes our marriage so much more and so do I. I needed to realize that I had a deep spiritual problem that impacts everything in me. I needed to realize that I was addicted to myself and I am addicted to myself. That I'm addicted to my own pride. I'm addicted to my own version of sin. Even though it looked like the perfect kind, it was kind of insidious and gross. I needed to know that, and I needed to discover the God that Jesus knows how he sees me in that light and who he really is. And I'm telling you, when that began, everything began to change. And it continues to grow and change. When my picture of God started to be more aligned with the God Jesus knows. And when my picture of me started to be more aligned with how Jesus describes me, it changed. 
And what I realized is just this beautiful message that Jesus continually gave, that Christianity gives, is this, that I am more sinful than I ever dared believe. Knowing that is very important. That's what Christianity teaches, that I am more sinful than, than I ever dared believe, but I am more loved by him than I ever dared hope. There's no despair in the first point because I'm so loved by him. And, and because of what he's done, and because he doesn't want to leave me there, and because the light of Jesus, God, of God wants to shine in, and the blood of Jesus wants to cleanse me, and because he wants to actually put his life and his spirit in me, that, that even though I'm more sinful than I ever dared believe, and I'm more loved than I ever dared hope, I can be because of him, when I trust him and, and know him, that I am more whole than I ever dared imagine. That's the gospel. That's the gospel message that Jesus brought, that I'm more sinful than I ever dared believe. I'm more loved than I ever dared hope. And in him, I'm more whole than I ever dared imagine. That's, that's what he said. That's what he brought. That's what he did. And that changed everything. But let me also just say this. It couldn't just stay theory. And there were two things that happened in my life that helped me take the theory of that because it's easy for this to stay theory and theology and not change. Again, I was in ministry, I was preaching, I was praying, and I was not loving my wife. How did that become a real life in me? The first thing that happened is my mind, my idea of who God is and who I am began to change and began to reflect a better picture of the God Jesus knows. And if that doesn't change, nothing can change. Because it's all based on that foundation. My idea and my understanding of God became more aligned with the God Jesus knows. And it's still growing and still becoming. I'm not there yet, but I'm grateful for that. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is very practical. I needed the help of others. I needed a community of people around me who also loved and were also discovering and developing and deepening a relationship with the God Jesus knows. Because... If the, as I got more honest and more real with the group of people, real people in my life who re knew the real me, they could help me apply what I believed about God to my real life and my real marriage. So it's not just changing my understanding of God to align with the God Jesus knows, but it's community of people who are also on that journey around me, helped me change. And then the last, the, the third one, uh, another practical thing is I began to realize that I was misunderstanding spiritual disciplines. You know, the praying and the going to church and the reading your Bible and the fasting, whatever it is, all those spiritual disciplines that are supposed to make us more holy. I thought that. I thought they make you more holy. If I do this, I'll change. But I was doing them and I wasn't changing because my foundational understanding of God was not in line with the God Jesus knows. And so that had to get in place, my community had to get in place, and then my understanding of spiritual disciplines changed, and I started to realize it's not just spiritual disciplines, it's actually kind of like training. Like, you know like an athlete trains every week to go on Sunday and play the game, to go and do what they do so well in the game? Do you know why they can? Because they've trained. And spiritual disciplines are like soul training. It's all, the best way I can explain it is it's like muscle memory. Um, you know what muscle memory is? You know, when you can just do something because you know how to do it because your muscles remember and they just know how to do it. Best explanation of muscle memory I can give you is golf, okay? And the reason I can give you that is because I am not a golfer. I, I, I've played golf a couple times, a few rounds, but I'm not a golfer. And let me just tell you, I've, I've, I've gotten two birdies. I thought I'd get an applause. 
Thank you, I mean, thank you. I've gotten two birdies in my life and I'm telling you, I can still remember every shot on those holes. It was amazing. No professional golfer would ever have been able to do those holes better than I did. I, I, I'm talking real golf language here, right? So they couldn't do it. Like it was like, over the trees in the fairway, it was amazing. But I've only done it twice, do you know why? Because I have no idea how I did it. I don't have the muscle memory of golf. I'm like, I just do this to swing. And the one time it went perfect. It was amazing I got a birdie, but I can't do it again, you know, because I don't have the muscle memory. And, and that's why professional golfers are professional golfers, because they've practiced and practiced and practiced and trained and trained and trained and trained where they know exactly how to hit that ball when the wind changes slightly. They know exactly what they're doing because they have the muscle memory. Spiritual disciplines, I started to realize, is kind of like that. It's training my spirit, training my soul to take what I believe and make it real life. When I pray, when I go to church, when I read the Bible, when I do that stuff, it kind of trains my soul, helps me do that and train my soul in living out practically what I believe in my heart. And so I realized I, I gotta change my understanding of God to line up with the God Jesus knows. I've gotta have community around me and I've gotta get the muscle memory to live this out like I believe I want to. And then the last one's the most important one. Realize that I actually can't change myself. All of this stuff outside of his work in me, the Holy Spirit in me can't do anything. He's the one who helps change my understanding of God. He's the one who, who makes community real community. He's the one who actually trains my muscle memory and my soul to live this out. The presence of the Holy Spirit in me actually doing what Jesus said, that he comes to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a reliable method of change. Not me willpowering myself into something, but, but asking myself, is what I believe in line with the God Jesus knows? Do I have community around me that's gonna help me live this out? Am I training my soul? Am I getting the muscle memory to live this? Because otherwise I'll just go back to my golfing and that's not good. Am I training my soul? And do I acknowledge and depend on the Holy Spirit in my life to do that? There's a book called The Good and Beautiful God written by James Bryan Smith. And a lot of what I'm saying now is found in this book. And a lot of where we're going in the series is kind of inspired by that book. And he, man, it's brilliant. If you wanna dive deeper into this idea, The Good and Beautiful God by James Bryan Smith. And he gives handles to understand this reliable method of change and challenge us, us to know, do we know the God Jesus knows? So with all that said, those four reasons is why we do church the way we do. We wanna be a safe community where anyone can discover, develop, and deepen our relationship with Jesus. We wanna be a safe community that has that community, but always points to the God that Jesus knows. Not just some random idea about who God is, not our own made-up idea, but the God Jesus knows, because on that foundation, our lives can be different. We also wanna help point to ways that we can grow our muscle memory and train our souls. And finally, we never wanna to point to ourselves for where we get change from, but we always wanna to point to the work of God inside of us, because otherwise we're not going deep enough. That's what we're doing as a church. But then specifically in this series, here's where we're headed for the next few weeks. I want us to challenge our own understanding of God. I want us to look at certain things that we might believe that are very popular beliefs among Christians and among churches and then ask the question, 
Is that a reflection of the God Jesus knows? Or is that just something I've made up? Because if we have ideas about God that aren't in line with the God Jesus knows, then we won't be able to grow. It'll hinder our spiritual growth. It'll hinder our change. So that's where we're headed for the next few weeks. We're going to ask questions about what do we believe about God? And is it in line with the God Jesus knows? So I hope you'll join us as we kind of ask these questions and hopefully discover, develop, and deepen an understanding of and a relationship with the God Jesus knows. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you so much that you, you didn't just shout from heaven saying, know me. You, you came down. Jesus, you came and you showed us who you are. Jesus, you gave us the most beautiful picture of a loving, sacrificial God, and you taught about the God you know. Help us grow in our understanding. Help us develop an understanding of the God Jesus knows. And then, Father, do the work you do in us to make us who you want us to be. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.